six, seven, maybe eight weeks now, I don't know. We've been going through this amazing New Testament letter called Galatians. Today we pick up at chapter five. It's a journey where, where this apostle, this early follower of Jesus named Paul, is writing to this fledgling group of Gentile Christians in modern-day Turkey, a region then called Galatia. Writing to them because people were just throwing them into this mass confusion. See, they had heard this message of good news, that, that, that there is this God who loves them, that comes to them and sent his son to die for them. And because of what God did and not because of what they do, they could not only be right with God, forgiven by God, accepted by God, blessed by God, but part of God's covenant community people as well. That they could be Israel, Sons and children of Abraham. Ones inheriting the promises that God had done through his people of old, now offering it freely through his son to anyone who calls on his son's name. And throughout this letter, for those of you who maybe have not been with us or, or lose sight of it over the weeks, Paul has been hammering this point again and again and again that it is what God does, not what you do, that matters when it comes to all things spiritual. Let me say it again. It is what God does, not what you do. That matters when it comes to getting right with God, becoming acceptable to him, finding his blessing and being a part of his people. This is so foreign. This is so contrary to everything we would expect, to everything life kind of shows us, isn't it? Life teaches us work for what you get. You get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. Karma. God is a different way. It's scandalous. It's hard to grasp. It doesn't make sense. And if you're struggling with it, that's okay. God's got a bigger brain than me and you. And his ways are not always our ways. His thoughts are not always our thoughts. But he invites us to believe him and take him at his words, even when it stands in such stark contrast to what we think and expect and assume by common sense what would otherwise be right. So let me say it again in case it was missed today. It is all about what God does and not what you do. And right here at Galatians 5, verse 1. We're going to pick up with this exact same theme again because Paul knows this. We don't get it the first time around. We don't get it the second time around. We don't get it the fifth time around. We got to hear it again and again because when every prevailing force around us and every prevailing force within us is shouting a different message, leading us to believe something else, it is easy to forget. It's easy to compromise it. It's easy to kind of shave the corners and shove it in and make it fit so there's kind of a unified whole way of thinking about things. No, 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 no. Paul will have none of that. Galatians will have none of that. The Bible will have none of that. Jesus will have none of that. He invites us to a different way. Instead, I want to invite you to follow along with me. 
at Galatians 5. We're going to look at 15 verses, verses 1 through 15. It's too much to put on a screen. You'll find Bibles under a chair if you're here with us in person. You'll find about a thousand Bibles on your phone with a really quick Google search or download of uversion.app. Pick your flavor. I don't care. And for those of you at home, I invite you to follow along as well. I'm going to mix this on you. I'm going to give you a little bit from a couple different translations here today. It might throw you a little bit, but you're smart people. You'll you'll hang in there and uh, you'll figure out where we're going. I'm going to read Galatians 5.1 from the NIV. And then I'm going to continue it on, repeating it, if you will, in the message translation this morning. Let me open it here today. Here's what it says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Pretty good verse, isn't it? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus himself says, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And that's the message of the God of the Bible. A God who takes people in the bondage of slavery and makes them free. Free from what? Well, let's let him get into it. Here we go. Repeating from the message, Christ has set us free to live a free life, so take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I am emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision or any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the way of circumcision, that is, the Old Testament Mosaic law, The person who accepts the ways of that trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ for the obligations of the slave life of the law. I suspect you would never intend this, but this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, We expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is far more interior, he says. Faith expressing itself in love. I love how verse 7 puts it, you were running a good race. The message says superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you into the race in the first place, and please don't toss this off as insignificant. It only takes a minute amount of yeast, you know, to permeate an entire loaf of bread deep down. The master has given me confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, as I did in those pre-Damascus road days, 
well, come on, that's absurd. Why would I be persecuted then? If I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. Why don't those agitators, obsessed as they are with circumcision, go the whole way and castrate themselves? I love the Bible. <laughs> it's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Let me pause. Is it? Is it? Is it absolutely clear? Please, right here, right now, make no mistake and find yourself in that place with absolute clarity that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use that freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out in no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? One more time, Paul coming around, trying to get us to see it is not by obedience to some set of commands be them ones devised by Moses in the Old Testament and handed down on Sinai. Be them ones concocted by a church. Be them ones inherited through Christian tradition. It is not by some set of commands that you stand right with God. Paul calls that slavery. He calls it slavery. And if you missed it before, hear him again do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Do not let yourself be burdened by the law, by the rules, by the commands that we think we have to get right with God by. Don't do it. Does this sound like the most anti-Christian thing that you would assume? Does it sound like it goes in contrast to everything you assume Christianity is about? Doesn't that betray something in you? That you have traded, forgive me for being so direct, but you have traded the message of the Bible for the message of your parents and grandparents and churches instead. The assumptions you've created that somehow Christianity at its core is a message about how to be a good person. And being a good person is what fundamentally matters. That is not Christianity. Whatever your church, your parents, or grandparents, or friends, or skeptics, or teachers have led you to assume, don't take my word for it. Read for yourself. It's there in black and white. 
Do not let yourself be burdened by this yoke of slavery. It's this message that he's been coming back to around and around again because it is just too hard to believe. And it raises all kinds of questions. It would seem that we can come to some kind of conclusion after hearing this kind of stuff that we can go, wait, wait, really? Are you kidding me? Wait, wait, really? Does this mean I can do whatever I want? And if it is leading you to ask that question, that is a good sign that you are reading it correctly. Because if it doesn't lead you to that question, you may be in danger of watering it down or shaving the edge or diminishing what it actually has to say. If it doesn't lead you to that place of going, damn, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. It doesn't matter if what I do doesn't save me or unsave me. Does that mean God doesn't give a rip? Does that mean I can live the way I want to live in my own lives freely? It's interesting that every time Paul talks this boldly about the gospel in the pages of the Bible, he anticipates that that's exactly where the person is going to go. And so every time he has to kind of step in on it to, full, to, to fill things out more Roundly, But before we jump there, let's not leapfrog it. If your understanding of the gospel does not lead you to that place, you might not be reading it correctly. I want to give you a quote today. It is from a Welsh minister named Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is just, man, that's a great name. And this was some advice he gave, not to you, but to me. Not personally, but in writing. Advice he gave as he was teaching pastors. He says this, I quote, If your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in this way, then you had better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament. There is this kind of dangerous element about the presentation of the doctrine of salvation. Scandalous, Paul will call it. Because if you're reading it this way, you're reading it right. And it often causes churches, Christians, well-meaning people, to downplay it because it just feels a little too radical. It seems too on the edge. It seems a little too out of sorts, if you will. And to trade the message of the gospel for behavior therapy instead. Tell me what to do. Apply it to my life. Teach me how to live better, because that's what fundamentally matters, right? Not to God it doesn't. Oh, there's a place for all those kinds of things. But if Christianity to you is nothing more than a system of self-improvement and moral betterment, 
you've missed the heart of the gospel. Now, back to the question. If, in fact, this kind of gospel proves to be true, as I'm claiming that it is, and hopefully the words are convicting you, does God then care about how you live? And the answer is yes. Because if your understanding of the gospel leads you only to think that is an excuse to do whatever you want, you still have not understood the gospel freely. Let's go back to Jesus again. To quote him in John chapter 8, if the son, referring to himself, if the son sets you free, you have been free indeed. You are free indeed. Can I ask you? Free from what? Free from what? I mean, Paul made clear. Free from the law. Free from a system of rules by which you need to kind of impress God or build yourself up to God or become somehow acceptable to God. No, no, we know that. We've seen that. But can I ask you, is that it? Is that the limit of God's freedom? Or has God come to free you for, in fact, even more? I think of God. And for moments it strikes me how vast he is, how big he is, how comprehensive he is, how beyond my small-minded questions. That every time I think I have seen the full range of God, I'm surprised to see that the horizon stretches even bigger and deeper and more. And the aspects that I cling on to are just the beginning. Oh, if the sun sets you free indeed, he has set you free. And freedom from the law is part of it. But it's freedom from something more. It's freedom from the bondage of sin that enslaves you. See, there's two dangers when coming up against the gospel. One danger is to think that by some power of our own, we need to get right with God. But another danger is to think that if God has set me free, it does not matter how I live. Both do not understand the fullness of the gospel because Christ has come to set you free from the law, but Christ has also come to set you free from sin because both are slave masters. I meet people, I talk to people. I've struggled myself at times with feeling under the law, as Paul will say it. You know, under the rules. When it comes to God, you know what it produces? A life of bondage and anxiety. Am I good enough? Did I do enough? Was it pure in heart enough? Or were my motives mixed? And does that taint the whole thing? How do I know? How do I measure? How do I really get there in the end? It breeds a life of fear. 
as li- a life of slavery, if you will. Constantly trying to impress God in a way that can never be achieved or walking away in despair because you realize it. It is a life of slavery. But I meet another life of slavery too. It's a life of slavery, slavery that jettisons God altogether. Great, I'll do it my own way. I'll do what I want. I'll do what I feel like. I'll do what's right in my own eyes. It sounds wonderful at first. It sounds so unburdened and maybe even emotionally released. And maybe it does. For a time. But the more that I've walked alongside people on that road and struggled with it, Myself, I realize it's not a path of freedom at all. I've traded one form of slavery for another. Slavery to my impulses, to my passions, to my desires, to what suits me in the moment Slavery to the pursuit of pleasure or power or security or whatever it is that we seek. That we think that a life lived our own way is going to bring us. It becomes a false god of its own and a cruel enslaving taskmaster. Those of you who have lived this way I don't need to convince you. You know what I mean. And those of you who don't, but find that way appealing, spend some time to meet someone who has walked that road and let them share with you if their pursuit of these things has brought them freedom and joy, peace and contentment and connection with something beyond themselves in the end. No, there's two dangers before us that the gospel seeks to cut through a danger to trying to impress God and prove to God our worthiness by our works and the danger of living a life our own way. And so if you were following in this passage, Paul says at the end, you, my brothers and sisters were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful Nature. Because that also isn't free. Christ has come to set us free from bondage to the law and bondage to sin. And both will seek to have us. You know, Jesus, um, in teaching, on this and on the way of God. He has this this amazing parable, a story that he tells that I want to just summarize with you today. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son. Have Have you heard this before? Have you heard that term maybe used? It comes out of Luke chapter 15. It is the third 
in a series of three stories Jesus tells back to back. It's a trilogy, and it's meant to be viewed as a trilogy, by the way. So, so don't skip over one and two. But you can read this in Luke chapter 15. I encourage you, maybe do that today. But I'm going to read you the opening verse. It says, tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to hear him. Because there was something in this, this discussion of freedom that he was saying that I think was attractional to them. It was invitational to them. It was a point of hope again. But the religious folk, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. If God were truly God, if Jesus were truly holy, how could he condescend himself to be with people like these? If that's your idea of God, you don't know Jesus. And so he tells these parables back to back, a parable about this guy with lost sheep. Guy's 100 sheep, 99 are doing well. One wanders off, what does the guy do? He goes after looking the one that has wandered far away. He tells a parable about a widow who has some, some money. She has coins, 10 coins, and she loses one of them. She puts her other coins aside to go sweep the house top to bottom until she finds that coin. And then comes this story of what Jesus, or I should say later Christians, have called the prodigal son. It's a story about a man and his two sons. And one of them comes to his father and says, in no uncertain terms, I'm done here and I'm done with you. Give me my share of the inheritance now. Drop dead, dad. Because all you're worth to me is money. So just give it to me now and let me get out of your life and you can get out of mine and I'm going to go live my own way. And the father, surprisingly, does it. The son takes his wealth. And as Jesus will tell the, the parable, he squanders it in wild living. Love to know what that means. Use your imaginations today. He squanders it every last cent. And like a lot of people who have embarked on that way of life, and it feels so great at first, came to a point of realizing that it was a dead end. And he finds himself destitute, broken. May I use the word enslaved? He finds himself hiring himself out to a pig farmer. Sounds bad enough in its own right. My apologies to any pig farmers who are here listening today. But it's a dirty job. And it would be listed on a TV show. And for a Jew with an animal like this, you don't sink any lower. And he's so hungry that he finds himself eating the slop wishing he could fill his stomach with the very slop that the pigs were eating. In a moment of brokenness, when he is at his lowest, he has a revelation. Dad has money. What if I go back to dad and hire myself out to him instead? 
What if I go back to dad and tell him what I think he wants to hear? I'm sorry, dad. I know I've sinned against you. Please take me back as one of your servants. Sometimes people cast this as being so sincere. The more I read the story, the more I am convinced this son is still just seeking a means to his own end. And he goes. And he makes the journey home. And as he comes up over the horizon, dad is watching and looking. And he sees his dad. And his dad, far from what he expected to happen, comes running to him. And he puts his arms around him. And he takes off his own robe and puts it on him. And says it puts a ring on his finger. And commands his servants to kill a fattened calf and have a feast. Because in his words, my son was lost and is now found. My son was dead and is now alive again. What an amazing, beautiful picture of the way God treats us in our prodigal sinfulness. And we end the story there. And I think we end the story there because people told us that it's the story of a prodigal son. But I'd like to rename the story today because for Jesus, the story doesn't end there. Because this kid has got an older brother. And the older brother has sought to do it right. To follow the rules. To obey his dad. To do everything in his power to please his dad by his efforts. His younger brother asks for an inheritance and goes, squanders it away. No, the older son continued to work the fields by his dad. Look at me, dad. Aren't I great? Jesus tells the story and says that this older brother sees it. And it uses this biblical word that doesn't make sense to us, but I'm going to roll with it. He's indignant. He's mad. He's ticked. He's frustrated. You know the feeling. How can you do that, Dad? How can you do that? You see the way he treated you? You see what he did while I have stood by your side through thick and thin? Can I ask you something today? What does the older brother reveal to you? That while there is a danger of indulging our sinful nature in our freedom, there is a danger as well of thinking we impress God by what we do. That deep in our core, though we tell ourselves otherwise, Part of us, I think, believes that God owes us. Look at a good person like me. I didn't do what he did. You know, it shouldn't be called the parable of the prodigal son. It should be called the parable of the prodigal sons. Because the point of the story is that both were prodigal that day. 
Two dangers. Trying to get right with God by following his law through your own efforts. Using the freedom from the law as an indulgent excuse to sin. Which son are you? I want to show you a video today that for me seems to capture this. And more significantly, the main character of the story, God. That captures the the heart of God. Eyes on the preacher. (laughs) Exciting stuff happening up there, I know. (laughs) Music's coming. the story of God. Whichever son you are expressing his invitation to you. Since we talked, I was, you know, I was kind of hoping you'd answer, but um, yeah, I understand that you probably don't want to talk to me. I've just gone so far, and the things I've done, I, I just regret it, you know? And I know how bad I've hurt you and let you down, but, but Dad, I, I miss you. I miss how we drive around and just talk about life. And I just, I just want to come home. But I know you've probably written me off. I can't blame you, actually. Here's, here's, here's the thing. <laughs> it's kind of a shot in the dark, but I'm, uh, I'm coming through town soon and you, Dad.